in 1950s Baltimore, when downtown shops were still largely segregated. Black working and middle-class residents in search of decent suits and dresses for work and church were faced with a conundrum. They might have been able to patronize a shop, black money still being green and all, but they were forbidden from trying on clothes in those shops, if they were allowed to buy at all. Everything from fit to fabric texture had to be determined mostly by eye alone. Add to the inability to handle the clothing or enter fitting rooms the requisite racial profiling, store clerks hovering and staring for instance, and adding to one's wardrobe could be an uncomfortable experience. A few local black entrepreneurs sought to change that. Among them, Victorine Adams, wife of local business legend Willie Adams, shop owner and hat maker Piney Ross, fashion promoter Travis Winkie, and Pauline Brooks, who achieved an incredible feat in 1952, opening her very own handmade corset shop, and who, 15 years later, became the first black woman to open a boutique in a major shopping center, Mondalman Mall, in 1967. These entrepreneurs offered black consumers safe spaces to be indulgent, discerning perusers and to carefully deliberate before investing in new clothing. It may seem like a small thing, but you can't put a price tag on dignity. Being treated like you're worthy of being catered to, not just as a customer, but as a person, is an invaluable experience. For a time, those local pioneers were the sartorial saviors of Black Baltimore. That is until desegregation, when consumers newly overwhelmed by options eventually became less loyal to Black clothiers exclusively. There's still a vanguard of Black fashion designers and sellers in Charm City. In this bonus episode, you'll hear from a few of them as we trace the roots of local Black fashion retail and design through its necessity-driven past to its innovative future. For WEAA 88.9 FM, I'm Stacia Brown, and this is The Rise of Charm City, bonus episode one, dressed and highly favored. That's a picture of mommy, and that's one of our models. (laughs) My name is Paula Brooks, and I am here to talk about my mother. My mother was one of the first um, African-American women to own a clothing store in Baltimore. We first came across the name Paula Brooks while conducting research for our season one episode, Mall's Fair and Love and War, about the history of Mondalman Mall. We read about her in a 1996 Baltimore Sun obituary so compelling and interesting that we reached out to our daughter Paula for an interview. It will be months before we heard back. By then, season one had ended, But we still thought people should know about Mrs. Brooks, who, it's worth noting, worked as a domestic before taking classes at Cortez Peters Business School, Morgan State University, and Maryland Institute College of Art, or MICA. She was always in the business of broadening her education and bettering herself, Paula told us. She began in fashion working for Mitnick Brothers, um, which was a Jewish store on Pennsylvania Avenue. And at that time, stores, they sold like appliances and clothing and all different kinds of things. But little stores on Pennsylvania Avenue was one of the main areas that black people shopped. So um, she began as a bookkeeper at Mitnick Brothers. They typically sold cheap clothing and clothing that 
really was a very low quality. And my mother started telling them, I think that people would buy clothing that was a better quality. So one, one day they gave her an opportunity to go to New York and buy for the store. And she bought and the clothing sold and she ended up becoming a buyer, which was unheard of. That Mrs. Brooks was given the rare opportunity to make clothing purchases for the store and for the store's black consumers in particular, spoke to the Mitnick Brothers' trust in her eye and her acumen. After getting some experience as a buyer under her belt, Mrs. Brooks branched out, opening a corset shop on North Avenue. She actually was one of the first blacks, the only black in her class, to take the corset-making course. She went out of business when during World War II. They used the boning um, that was used in corsets. They used it some kind of way in the war, so she wasn't able to get it. Mrs. Brooks and her husband, W. Bernard Brooks, then sold and delivered women's fashions from their second shop. She actually went to New York, I think the day before she had me, came back, worked in the store that day, and then had me the next day. So that's the kind of person that she was. She just, whatever she was focused on doing, that's what she did. After two North Avenue locations, first in a basement, then in a storefront, she eventually made a major leap. Moving into Mondaman was a really big deal, and she couldn't have done it on her own. Council for Equal Business Opportunity, also known as SIBO, they were the ones that negotiated her move. It started out as a way to advertise her clothing, but it ended up being such a great fundraiser for churches, sororities, and all kinds of civic organizations. All the while, as she moved from location to location, her name and business ever growing in local and regional renown, Mrs. Brooks relied on a well-honed promotional concept, narrated fashion show she organized, cast, and styled herself. The whole fashion troupe they called themselves the Pauline Brooks Fashionable Ones. We were really, truly one big family. And the models themselves were well-known and well-educated. The Pauline Brooks Fashionable Ones traveled together up and down the eastern seaboard, and once they reached a destination much farther than that. We did a fashion show in St. Croix, and we used models from St. Croix, we used Miss Virgin Islands, Miss St. Croix, and several other models from there. So, And it was held at Island Center and held about 800 people. I can remember when they broke the news to us that we were actually going to do a fashion show in St. Croix. That was monumental. I'd never been to the islands before. We had to get the passports and stuff, and when we got there, it was like we were all celebrities from the time we got off the plane. My name is Carolyn Wainwright, and um, I was one of the Pauline Brooks fashionable ones. We met Ms. Wainwright at her home, a well-appointed multi-story row home in an historic district of the city, and talked for over an hour about her memories of working with Mrs. Brooks. She started at the age of 17, becoming the youngest of the fashionable ones. 
Pauline asked my mother if I could model for her. And uh, my mother was rather reluctant. It was the late 50s. Modeling for a black girl wasn't exactly the thing to do, and she didn't see it going anyplace. But she was a customer of Pauline's, and she knew Pauline's reputation, so she reluctantly said yes. Ms. Wainwright was immediately initiated into the company of models, a diverse group from body type to profession. Our group was made up of all sizes. So when I was 17, I was a size three to five. And so I wore the smaller clothes, but there were people who wore 10s, 14s, uh, 20 and a half. And so when I started on my first show, they all sort of gathered around me and uh, said, okay, we're gonna show you the ropes. Melanie Urell sort of showed me how to walk, Mabel Burton was also my size, but she gave me some styling tips. And um, the rest of them just became big sisters and aunts to me. When it came to our fashion shows, Mrs. Brooks ran a tight ship, and she knew her audience and their sartorial needs and preferences like the back of her hand. Pauline used to shop for people. You know how people have shoppers now. Well, Pauline, you could go into Pauline's store and say, look, Pauline, I got the guardsman's dance coming up. I don't have anything to wear. And Pauline would say, hey, get back to me in a a couple of days. And she would be able to come up with several suggestions of things that you could select from. So she knew who you were. She knew your body type. uh, She knew your style and was a, a really good shopper. I have things in my closet right now that I bought from Pauline 30 years ago that I could put on and people would say, oh, really, that's, that's really nice, you know, not knowing it was 30 years old. That was the kind of style that she presented to Baltimore. We used to do fashion shows, I, of course, in the 27 years that I modeled for her, we saw fads come and go. We were in minis. Twiggy was doing lashes and short dresses, and we were doing lashes and short dresses. And then one horrible uh, weekend, Pauline said, I hate to tell you this, but there's a new trend that's called maxi. So we went from short dresses above the knee to something almost to the ankle. We were not happy. But as she often reminded us, we were models. We had to show the clothes. We had to make sure that the customers were able to see the clothes in the best possible light. For some, body positivity in fashion, that is showcasing models of all shapes and sizes and clothing that is fitted, tailored, and fashion forward, may be a relatively new concept. Hearing Ms. Wainwright discuss how important this was to Mrs. Brooks in the 1950s and 60s really drove home how pioneering she was, not just as a businesswoman, but also as a womanist and a visionary. She took us out to fashion shows where we looked like the people in the audience. Our favorite models were the one were Melanie Urell, who was a size 14, and gray-haired, and Tenya Wiggins, who was a size 22 and a half. She was my height, and she was 22 and a half. But she was feisty, and she wore everything we wore. If we had a bathing suit scene, Tenya was in a bathing suit scene. If we were doing cutoffs, she was in cutoffs. 
and she pulled it off well. And that's why people came to our shows, because they knew that they could find the clothes that would look good on them because they could see themselves up on the runway. Before talking to Ms. Brooks and Ms. Wainwright, I hadn't given much thought to the many practical functions of fashion shows. I was thinking of them only in contemporary terms, as ways to showcase a collection of clothing in highly stylized and artsy ways. In my mind, the end game for those types of shows may have still been to compel people to buy the pieces, but definitely at a later date. For a buyer and personal shopper like Mrs. Pauline Brooks, the goal was more immediate. She wanted on-site sales. Her models weren't there just to display the clothing. They were there to sell it, literally. We didn't leave the show until you were able to come back and try the clothes on. As a matter of fact, the two models that I mentioned, Melanie and Tenyo, they would be on the runway and sometimes, and I, I saw this with my own eyes, before Melanie would get off the runway, somebody would reach over and say, hey, put my name on this. Because people would rush backstage when the show was over and start uh, selecting clothes, trying them on. Our job became no longer model. We were salespersons. We knew our clothes. We were responsible for making sure that the clothes were in good shape by the time the audience came back. We couldn't just, you know, throw a $200 suit over there on the chair and help have somebody else pick it up. Sometimes we took our own jewelry with us, and the spinoff was people would say, oh, you know those earrings that you had on? Can I have those? And I'd have to say, well, those were my earrings. Or I'd say, sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I'd sell them for Pauline. Um, but... It was that kind of strategy that helped her, um, helped her succeed because they were able to take the item home right away. In the late 1960s and throughout the 1970s, business was stable and thriving for Pauline Brooks at her Mondalmin location. But Paula says the 1980s brought harder times for the shop as the mall itself became a less safe shopping environment. Well, we had been robbed a couple of times. My mother's store, the store was right on the end, upstairs next to Maryland National Bank. And a couple of times people came in and just, you know, robbed us and went on back out the door. And, you know, people were saying, well, I don't go to Mundaman anymore. You know, that was, Mundaman was kind of in transition right then. So I wanted to really reach the mainstream, and we started looking at the Belvedere Hotel. It was bright. It was a bright um, area. We had a lot of customers, such as Shaka Khan and um, Divine, (laughs) people that, you know, would come to downtown Baltimore to perform, came to the store. Paula says that tradition of famous customers didn't begin at the Belvedere. My mother always had well-known clientele. Oprah came to the store at Mundaman. She was a customer there. Ethel Ennis, when she sang at the White House, um, she bought something to wear there. The Brooks family spent more than 30 largely successful years as shop owners. I asked Paula what ultimately led her to shutter her mom's boutique. 
I think it was several things. Integration became big and people began to go wherever they wanted to go. They could go to wherever and say, oh, I got this from, you know, Neiman Marcus or I got this from Macy's or whatever. I think um, competition was higher. I think it was just probably time. (laughs) You've been listening to Dressed and Highly Favored, a bonus episode of The Rise of Charm City on WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Desegregation may have resulted in the closing of some of the Black-owned fashion shops created to serve the city's neglected Black consumer, but Black fashion has always lived in Baltimore. After learning more about the legacy of pioneering dress shop owner Pauline Brooks, we wanted to find out who's been carrying the sartorial torch here in the city in more recent years. We are at 110 West Saratoga in downtown Baltimore. I have been in this location for six years now. I opened my boutique in 2010, and I'm thankful and blessed to keep growing. This is local designer Jody Davis, founder of Jody Davis Designs. My specialty is women's dresses, and I specialize in dresses that are statement dresses, dresses that make a woman feel powerful, feminine, and classic all at the same time. You see my runway, um, and I had this runway here, and I took half of it up, and then I took the whole runway up, and my clients were like, where's that runway? So something as small as six inches off the floor with lights makes a huge difference for a woman who may have always had that aspiration of being on the runway. And then back here is where all the magic happens, so please don't mind the, um, the chaos. But that's, as you see, my fabric library, um, fabric that I've acquired over many years, in this dress form is my dress form that I drape my women's dresses on. And I have that, I've had that dress form since I graduated from Fashion Institute in New York City. And this is my table where I start my cutting. So I do my patterns, my samples. You see all of my, my sewing apparatus is where I do, where it all starts, where the magic all begins. Davis says that opening her shop in Baltimore was an easy decision. She was born and raised here but she admits that she wouldn't be able to rely solely on a local customer base to keep the doors open. I've not developed a huge client base in Baltimore, but the ones that I do have are pretty fashion-forward women um, who like a particular style, like a particular look. My business is not just localized, and that's also because I do conferences. I do different women's conferences, so I may set up at a women's conference in Naples, Florida, or in uh, Chicago or in New York just to build my client base. Touring Miss Davis's shop and listening to her discuss her design and business practices reminded us of Mrs. Brooks' thoughtful approach to fashion and sales. We wondered how Miss Davis felt about the usefulness of fashion shows for selling her custom pieces. I don't do fashion shows because for me, fashion shows is basically to entertain people. And that's not the business I'm in. I'm not in the business to entertain. I'm in the business to sell my dresses. So as opposed to a fashion show, I would do a trunk show. And the trunk show difference is when my clients come, they come, they're looking at a a particular piece. And they know they're coming to look at a piece, not just to look at it, but to also purchase it. We asked how she thinks fashion has changed over time. Oh, that's kind of frightening. Um, 
the future of fashion is clearly none, none of us are walking around in the nude, so there will be some fashion somewhere, somehow. But has fashion been watered down to just jeans and a T-shirt is the, is the big question. You know, everyone is looking into comfort, and um, so there's no importance, I think, of showing up at, a, um, at your office looking polished. Not that you can't look polished in a pair of jeans and a T-shirt, but it's just not the, um, the importance of, like, men when they wore their three-piece suits and their ties and their um, shirts and women in their beautiful dresses. Now everybody is just come as you are. This is a sentiment that fellow veteran fashion designer Carlos Palmer shares. We have a tendency, in particular in Baltimore, we have a tendency to follow a herd. We all want to dress alike. We say, oh, I want to be different. But then we go and we do and buy the same things. Mr. Palmer got his start at none other than the Baltimore School for the Arts, where he holds an historic distinction. I was, I am the very first student that studied fashion that went to the Baltimore School for the Arts. They had to develop a program for me because back in the 80s, fashion was not seen as art. Uh, And so um, in order to keep me there, I needed to be able to get a little bit of fashion in what I was doing. And so they developed a program specifically for me. Today, the Baltimore School for the Arts still does not have its own fashion major. But Mr. Palmer's experience and individualized course of study there has inspired many other students to use their visual arts training as a basis for college prep in the field of fashion design. Christian Siriano that's there, there was a a young man that was a little bit behind me. I kind of, it was, I guess, kind of pushed the doors open for him. His name was Michael Jones, and he is actually the creative director, if I'm Correct, I think he is the creative director at Liz Claiborne. Of all the people we spoke to about the history and current state of fashion in Baltimore, Mr. Palmer is the only one whose relationship to the fashion show closely resembles the modern expectation of a runway show. Unlike Mrs. Brooks, who used a commentator to describe clothing as her models walked, and Ms. Davis, whose trunk shows are meant solely to facilitate purchase, Mr. Palmer believes a fashion show is an art exhibit in motion. Here in Baltimore, I had a extremely high impact on how fashion shows are done because back in the early days of fashion here, fashion shows were tacky in my mind. I went to school. Um, I had never seen fashion shows like uh, the ones that I saw in New York. I learned that a fashion show could happen anywhere. Um, There is a beautiful space here on Morgan's campus that um, it is the Earl S. Richardson Library. And that stairway, I could just, I I would love to see a fashion show done there. I I spent my time going into architectural spaces and seeing how can you do a fashion show here. Not just the the runway piece of it, but how could the music be set up, the the electricity. I'm I'm always thinking in that, that way. Mr. Palmer's approach to fashion and design is largely philosophical. When I got older, I learned that everyone's experience isn't my experience. So my belief is has opened up. I think being neat and clean and creating the illusion of neatness and cleanness or cleanliness is important. That's as far as it goes. We all don't have a million-dollar wardrobe, and we all can't afford to... to, to 
wear something new and different every day. That's all right. Is it clean? Is it neat? Is it respectful? And, and how does what you have on impact others? Being able to open up and, and be explorative is important in fashion. Fashion is important. It is huge. It is huge. It is huge. I cannot express enough how I can change or control or alter my situation all in how I choose to, the clothes I choose to put on. He told us about the city of Baltimore's unique historical relationship to the national fashion landscape. Baltimore used to be a test ground for whatever happened in New York. I don't know if you know that. From Broadway, the old Pennsylvania Avenue, a lot of the the um, the shows there were, it, it was directly connected to what was going on in New York. And we also, the whole, the lower end of Baltimore Street towards the west were all clothing manufacturers. So a lot of designers had their clothing manufactured right here in Baltimore. There was, I know Pierre Cardin, I think, uh, I know Halston for sure, um, were made right here in Baltimore. He believes the future of the local industry is bright. One thing about Baltimore is that there is a lot of creative energy here, a lot. Um, the other thing that is that is kind of a staple here is Baltimore has always been a place where um, recycled or reused clothing. There's a, there's a the, the recycling and reusing is really big here. Coming with a fashion education or a little bit of, of, of a fashion education, how things are made, I think would help open people's mind or broaden their perspective as to um, what fashion's about. And I think that it would also allow people to have a little more respect for clothing. Because you know, I'm big on that. Because clothing can't speak for itself. So you got to have people like me that, that speak for it. Baltimore is a city where everyone prides themselves on looking good. Really good. Though handcrafted designs may not always be the priority, it's nice to know that some of the most talented designers the city has wrought remain right here within its limits. They are carrying the legacy of women like Pauline Brooks, catering to communities that are still somewhat overlooked on the global fashion marketing stage, for reasons rooted both in aesthetics and activism. Like Brooks, they are doing the work on their own terms, without awaiting anyone's permission or approval, and nothing could be more thrilling for the future of fashion in Baltimore than that. This episode was produced by Allie Post and Stacia Brown. It is brought to you by WEAA 88.9 FM with financial support from listeners like you. Many thanks to all who contributed to our online fundraising campaign this summer. This bonus episode is one small token of thanks to you. Production assistance was provided by Marsha Jews. Our theme music is produced by Mark Gunnery of the Center for Emerging Media. For photos related to fashion in Black Baltimore and the people you just heard talking about it, visit riseofcharmcity.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Rise of Charm City.